Hey there, welcome to Night School 202. I think I got that right. You know, I only know that because episode 200 was so recent. And I, I really love being able to say the number of the episode just off the top of my head. It makes me sound like I'm uh, prepared. It makes me sound confident, like I know what I'm talking about. But it's only a matter of time before I forget. So might as well say the number while I remember it. While I remember what episode I'm doing. And that's a good segue to the topic I want to talk about today, which is memory. And what brought this on, aside from the fact that I'm constantly thinking about memory, not just thinking about memories, but actually thinking about the idea of memory, uh, but aside from the fact that I'm often thinking about that, I got a call late last night from my friend Nick, and he was having a, let's just say a moment, an epiphany, and he didn't have anything to write with. And he just said, write, write this down. Write this sentence down. And I, I wrote it down as best I could. And I'm going to try to phrase it correctly here. And he said, when you're crazy, nobody, no one, or no thing is too big or too small to remember. And I, of course, laughed and understood immediately. (laughs) When you're crazy, nobody, no one, or no thing is too big or too small to remember. I love it. I love it, and uh, I feel like that plays in perfectly. I mean, there's a reason why this guy is a lifelong friend of mine, and part of that is because we both remember the same things. Not a, not perfectly, you know, our memories complement each other. You know, when you've known somebody for almost 30 years and you're still in your mid-30s, when you've just entered your mid-30s, when you've known someone for, you know, 28 years, 29 years, uh, you know, it's it's great that you share a lot of memories, but also, you know, you do not remember something versus, you know, one of you does remember something stronger versus the other. And I'm not even just talking about nostalgia here. I'm not talking about nostalgia necessarily, although you can't separate memory from nostalgia. And again, I think I've said it before, but I never know how hard that G should be. Should it be a J or a J? Nostalgia. Nostalgia. I I think I end up trying to blend the hard G with the soft G. The middle path of G. But, uh, but yeah, that idea of nothing is too big or too small to remember. And, of course, when Nick said, you know, when you're crazy, to me, that's when you're sane. And that's not me trying to turn, it's not, it's not me trying to turn this into a Hot Topic t-shirt that's like, when you're crazy, you, you're really sane. You know that you're sane when everybody's telling you you're crazy. That whole, like, kind of, the crazy ones are really the sane ones. Although, I mean, honestly, at this point, I don't know that that's wrong. As much as that is a Hot Topic t-shirt or some sort of, uh, you know, 14-year-old rebel's philosophical insight. Oh, when everybody else thinks you're crazy, you know you're the one who's sane. 
You know, maybe I don't disagree with that. Maybe I fully believe that at this point. Although there are some people where you just come across them and you're like, oh, this person's crazy. But when Nick called me and he said that when you're crazy, nobody, no one, or no thing is too big or too small to remember. Uh, when he said that to me, though, it's like, of course, like to me, though, it's like the people that I consider the most sane are the people with the best memories and not just the best ability to memorize things. I think it's what I would call the Gnostic memory. It's an experiential knowledge. It's the things that you experience, therefore you remember them and you know them. Because that's what it is. You know them. And of course, you don't know the things that you forget necessarily. Although I often do feel a void which is an interesting thing. It's interesting when you know you've forgotten something. You see, you see the, the silhouette of it. It's like a game show where uh, you're guessing who somebody is and they're darkened. They're in shadow and then you guess right and then there's the reveal. I think there's a game show like that. If not, that idea is so common. That, that idea of like get, like guessing someone's identity and they're silhouetted. Maybe they even have a question mark over their silhouette, and then it's revealed who they are. Who they are! Um, but, uh, you know, it's weird when you do have that feeling. You know, it's, it's what happens, the most obvious example is when you're trying to remember an actor. And you're talking to people, and you try to remember that actor who was in a movie. They're silhouetted in that moment. And maybe not even silhouetted, you can see them, but their identity is veiled and then you have that moment where you remember, and it feels great. It's, ex it's ecstasy, really. Even if the conversation has moved on and nobody else cares, and they make you feel like an idiot for remembering Orson Welles. That's who I was trying to remember a minute ago. You know, it's like even if they make you, they, they try to shame you. They try to memory shame you. Uh, even if they try to do that or nobody cares, it's like in that moment when you remember that name, when that silhouette becomes hit by light, hit by lightning, uh, you you do it. it. It's a light bulb moment, even though it's not a new idea. You know, you think about light bulb moments where it's like, oh, I just came up with a new idea. Sometimes it's just remembering something. And I mean, that's really what an epiphany is. I always refer to epiphanies as not new knowledge. It's something that you may have heard before, but now you feel it or know it. It's Gnostic. Epiphanies are very much Gnostic as well, where it's something that you may have heard. It may be a cliche, but you have an epiphany where it now makes sense. You know it. It feels like it's a part of you. It's experiential in a way. And I think some of the best light bulb moments are that way. It's almost like, and sometimes it may not even be something you've heard before, but it's still familiar. An epiphany can be something that feels like it's always been inside of you. It just hasn't been activated. It's activation. Now it is activated. And so in many ways, though, the light bulb moments to me are more about activation than something totally new coming to you. And uh, that's, you know, kind of plays into memory as well. When you forget something and then you remember it, it's like that memory is activated again. And 
it feels ecstatic. It feels amazing. And it's because you knew that this thing was inside of you somewhere, this memory. Oh, who, Orson Welles. It's a pretty well... James Woods. You know, whatever the actor is. Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonio. You know, whoever it is you're trying to remember. Uh, it's you, you know that they're there and they become activated again. But that's an interesting thing where you know that you don't know or you know that you don't remember. You know that you've forgotten. And there are some times where, you know, I, I would put my memory as far as, you know, my Gnostic memory, my experiential memory, I would put it up against just about anybody I know. But every once in a while, someone will say, oh, you said this thing, and they'll play it back to me. And sometimes that causes me to remember it. But sometimes I say, I didn't say that. You know, I did not say that, and maybe they're right and I'm wrong, but it's weird to not remember. And I mean, you know, I I think back on my drinking days, and that was a strange thing, because you, when you black out, or even, you know, even if you don't black out, but you just get drunk enough, you know, that's a big part of it, is forgetting, is going through, having all these experiences that, at the very least, you aren't going to vividly remember. And you very well might not remember them at all. And there's a terror to that. There's not really any terror when you forget something that happened a long time ago. But when you forget things that happened 12 hours ago, 8 hours ago, when you wake up the next morning and you have no recollection of what you did, there is a terror to that. And I think I, you know, there's a part of me that... I, you know, I don't want to turn this into some drinking monologue, but there's a part of me that thinks that that was part of the appeal for me as somebody who I don't I also don't want to get all psych 101 about this. But there is a part of me that thinks that one of the reasons I enjoyed drinking to excess was because I'm so consumed with memory and everything I experience becomes this part of me that I don't forget. You know, going about life, going out on these, you know, drinking binges, partying and all that, there's a part of me that thinks the appeal was partly to have these experiences that I wouldn't remember. Maybe. I don't know. But uh, to get back to what Nick said, you know, yeah, it's like when you're crazy, I mean, because there is something crazy about that. There is something crazy about remembering everything. And it's funny, because when he said that, I thought about... My friend Marco wrote a uh, a zine of, of his writing, and the name of the zine was I Remember Everything. This came out, I think, two or three years ago. I don't remember exactly when. Fairly recent. And uh, when it came out, and I and I saw the title, I, I just laughed. I remember everything. I, it was instantly relatable. And there's something scary about that. You know, while I was just talking about how when you go on a drinking binge and don't remember what happened the night before, there's a terror to that. There's also a terror to to knowing things. <laughs> Not so much your own memory, although that's a big thing, too. I mean, there's things that you'd like to forget. Although those aren't really terror. Like, the things that I would like to forget, and at this point I don't care. I'm cool with everything I remember. I'm cool with everything I remember, which is a good, it's a good feeling. I'm, I'm okay with every memory I got. Uh, but, you know, you think about trauma and what that is, is. It's like, I'm not okay with this memory. 
and I'm either going to block it out or I'm going to be haunted by it. Because memory to me, the memories I don't like, because even though I'm cool with all my memories, there are certainly memories I don't like. You know, I don't like that memory, you know, but uh, when I think about them, it's those kind of memories, they're more haunting than they are terror. Whereas when you wake up from a blackout, you feel this sense of terror, like the cops are going to knock on your door or all of your friends disowned you over the span. While you were sleeping, all your friends disowned you over that thing you said last night. And in most cases, that thing I said was just, I was too nice, <laughs> you know? The things that I, I usually, aside from maybe sending a drunk text to, like, an ex-girlfriend once in a blue moon or something like that, you know, the worst thing that happened was just always like, oh, I was a little too uh, loose-lipped, and I was maybe too complimentary in a drunk way or something. And not, I'm not even talking about hitting on people. I'm just talking about, like just repeating like oh you know you're awesome or whatever the hell drunk people do who don't start fights it's one or the other fortunately i wasn't a fight starter but you do think like oh god what happened in the last eight hours you know are the cops coming am i going to get a knock on the door you know um beyond you know just all that like oh did all my friends disown me that's terror that's the terror of not remembering something that just happened. But, you know, if it's from a long time ago, it's more haunting. It's more of this slow burn, you know, it's a slow burn, a slow burning haunt. A haunted house. Nick and I talked about that. We were talking about, you know, things becoming, you know, memory becoming a haunted house. Um, but, uh, to to get back on track here just when he said that it, it just it reminded me of my friend Marcos you know his the name of his zine being I remember everything and that to me is a scary statement because I think about many of my friends most of my friends have good memories and I think that's partially why we are friends because it's not just that we can talk about old times although I like doing that and I think people who say that there's a Sopranos quote where I I, I think uh, I want to say it's Polly, but somebody's you know rehashing old times with somebody on the Sopranos. Let's just say it's Polly. Here I don't remember, I don't remember who, which character it was, but uh, and he says, "Remember when is the lowest form of conversation?" And that struck that that hurt. <laughs> I was watching the Sopranos and it hurt. Because I was like, yeah, because I do enjoy nostalgia. I do enjoy going over old events. And you sometimes find new things. And not you're not inventing new things. You're not changing the story. But that's one of the reasons I enjoy it is because you or your friend will remember a certain detail. Something will become activated. So I do like remember when, but I don't like relying on it. You know, like, to me, there'd be something hellish if I had stayed in my hometown and only, you know, spent the rest of my life only with, like, my childhood friends, you know, and there's some peace and beauty to that, the idea of raising your children, you know, starting a family, let's say, and raising children in your hometown and, you know, living that King of the Hill sort of lifestyle where you talk about the big game in high school and all this. There's so, there's a beauty to that, but I think there's that's a haunted house too. 
It's a beautiful haunted house, as most haunted houses are. That's what you have to remember. If you feel like you're living in a haunted house, you remember just to remember all haunted houses are pretty beautiful places. A haunted McMansion. A haunted, uh, you know, some sort of modular home, not, not modular, um, one of those modern homes that's shaped like a wedge. A friend and I were walking the dogs the other day, and we came across a house we had never seen that was, it was like you took a wedge block, like a, ch- a child's block, block toy, whatever you, just blocks, we all know what blocks are, do I need to explain it? And it just looked like you put a, a wedge-shaped block on pillars, and that was the house, and I think it went down below, like it, like it was on a, the edge of a hill, and I think part of the house went below the hill, but the top of the house was just a wedge on stilts. Um, but just, yeah, that'd be funny to think of like a modern haunted house, a house with like a, a flat roof, because we all think of, because when you think of a haunted house, you think of it having all these eaves, you think of it being pointy. But the idea of a haunted house that's like painted white with a flat roof and a wedge on columns. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, haunted, all haunted houses are beautiful in their own way. Uh, but with friends, you know, it's like you, it, it is important to me to be able to go over old times. And it's not really, it's not like a, oh, everything back then was better. Let's just rehash our past. It's really not that. It's almost like studying. It's almost like studying history in a weird way, where it's like, oh, do you remember this detail? Do you remember this detail? And as Nick said, there's nothing too big or too small. And it's not that we're just remembering things when we talk about that stuff. It's also you had to be in the moment when that thing was happening you had to be experiencing it in order to gain it as knowledge for later reference. And that's scary, too, because, I mean, I'm embarrassed by things, you know, kind of like being cool with all my memories at this point. I'm also cool with all the embarrassing things that I've done, even though I think about them sometimes and it gives me a shiver down my spine. You know, that's, that's you know, a, a core component of the haunted house, is remembering embarrassing things you've done. It's not even like traumatic things. It's not even just, in my life, I've had a good enough life to where there hasn't been a lot of serious trauma. You know, there's not, not any real childhood trauma that I can remember. Uh, but there is a lot of embarrassment. Embarrassing myself. Because, I mean, when somebody tries to embarrass you, like an, when an external force tries to humiliate or embarrass you, if you have self-confidence, you know, you know that it's bullshit. But when you embarrass yourself, you know that only you are responsible. And uh, that's for my haunted house, my personal haunted house, (laughs) my personal beautiful haunted house, that's a big part of it, is the times where it's like I look back and I'm like, only you are to blame for that moment. And your friends probably remember it because they have good memories, too. And uh, when my friend Marco published his zine, I remember everything. I almost took that as a a threat. 
I almost I, I felt threatened by it. It's like, oh my God, you do remember everything. You do remember everything, and m- many of my friends do. I do. But I guess the good news is that I don't hold my memories of other people's embarrassments. I remember embarrassing things my friends have said and done, but I don't hold them against them. I guess that's the joy of friendship, is that you like the person. Although some people call each other friends, but are really out to get each other, but we don't need to, we don't need to go into that territory that's, that's all too common right now. Uh, but with, uh, you know, I remember everything. I just, I felt so threatened when I heard that. Not personally threatened by that friend necessarily, although a little bit, although a little bit. But, uh, you know, my friend Nick expressing something similar. Nick, who, he, you know, he's not familiar with, he doesn't know this other friend of mine. So it's like the two friends of mine have have both uh, thrown that idea you know, into the, into the wind to that, I, you know, being like, hey, you know, remembering nothing too big, too small, which is to say everything, and me instantly l- relating to it and laughing. I mean, I think about, you know, there's there was this experience I had, my friend Ryan, who passed away when, when I was 16, you know, a few years earlier, he had had a, a birthday party where we went to a Seattle Mariners baseball game. And we took the bus. I you know, it wasn't like a ton of us went. I want to say, you know, maybe 10 boys, maybe not 10, but it was quite a few boys. A lot of kids go to handle at a baseball game, and I think two or three parents went to keep track of everybody. It was a, a big event for a birthday party. It wasn't just going to somebody's house. It wasn't just going to Funplex, to the arcade. It was going to a baseball game in the city. And we took the city bus to get there. And we lived in the suburbs, you know, across the bridge from Seattle. So we took the the bus there. And I remember we were waiting at the bus stop. And this guy came up to us. And he wasn't a creep. But he just decided to start telling us, maybe because we were kids. But he decided to start telling us how he used to be Chuck E. Cheese. He used to have to wear the Chuck E. Cheese suit. And this is a man... I would say he's 40, maybe in his 40s. And he started telling us, yeah, how he used to be Chuck E. Cheese. And he was very, he was giving us a very detailed description of what it was like to wear the suit, which is what made it weird. It wasn't like, hey, kids, I used to be Chuck E. Cheese. This, this, and this. It was, he was, he, he was gesturing with his hands and you could tell that he was in that moment he was remembering what it was like to be in that suit and he was saying like you have these big shoes these big puffy shoes and then you got this this mask with this nose that goes out here and you know and it's it's hot and you're you know he was he was vividly describing each component of the costume to us each component of the outfit you could tell that having had that job at some point in his life had a heavy impact on him. It was part of his haunted house. I mean, it probably felt like being inside of a haunted house to be in that Chuck E. Cheese outfit. And we were all just standing there listening to him, and maybe you know one of the more outgoing kids asked him a couple questions. But I, my friend Nick and I, the one who called me last night, I remember we were sitting there, and we were just like, oh my god. 
you know, because we lived for that kind of experience. We, our childhood to this day, we lived for those sorts of interactions. To somebody else, it's just like, it's just like oh, a weird guy talked to us about how he used to be Chuck E. Cheese. But for us, it was this guy giving this vivid g- description and gesturing. He was kind of doing... You know, almost, almost like like defining like how the costume would have fit him, like like almost like that gesture that you know the old timey gesture of like a man showing what a woman's hourglass figure is like, like when it's like you know you do the curves of a woman. It was almost like he was doing that around his own body to show us like the contours of the Chuck E. Cheese outfit. It was, you could tell he was just in it in that moment. And he saw kids, and it was like, it triggered this memory in this man to be like, there's kids. That reminds me of when I was in the Chuck E. Cheese outfit working with kids. And, you know, who knows? You know, I don't want to get Psycho 101 about his life. Psycho 101. (laughs) I didn't mean to say that. Psych 101. Psycho 101. Um, But... You know, my for my friend Nick and I, we've talked about it since then. We didn't talk about it last night, but we've talked about it since then and how we vividly remember what this guy said. And I can, it was a Gnostic, it's a Gnostic memory. It was something I experienced. Therefore, it's there, and I'm not forgetting it. it and it might have been too small for some of the other kids there. You know, there were maybe, let's say, 10 boys, let's say eight, 10 boys there. Uh, and, hey, baddie, don't bark. No barking. And so there were, say, eight to ten boys there. And I, I would bet you if you asked, like, six of those boys, hey, remember when we went to the baseball game for Ryan's birthday and that guy at the bus stop came up to us on the way there and he, he described vividly his Chuck E. Cheese outfit? Maybe that would activate the memory in some kid, in some of the kids there. But I will bet that that memory to them, to many of them, is too small. I would bet that it was pretty unimportant. It was just... Oh, weird. A guy told us what it was like to to wear the Chuck E. Cheese outfit. But it was probably too small. But there's a reason why my friend Nick and I in that situation are still friends because, you know, we experienced that moment. We That was a, a moment where we're going to know this forever. And to me, that was a big event. Like to those other, you know, as Nick said last night, no, nothing is too big or too small to remember. But to me, that's that would fall in the big category. <laughs> you know, that, that would be in the big category for us, whereas, you know, for some of the other kids there, it might have been too small. And maybe they would remember if we brought it up. But for the, the funny thing is it's something I've never forgotten. Like, that's never been silhouetted in my memory. And it's not that uh, that was, you know, I have a, and I have a million memories like that. Because I've always looked for those sorts of people. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of my friendships come in, where we have similar observations, and because we are observing the same things, we are having a shared experience that then turns into a memory. Math right there. Which is funny, because, you know, for, for me, I don't remember the things I learned in math class. I don't remember how to do algebra. I don't remember geometry. I don't remember if I even learned anything after that. I don't remember if I even took a math class after like eighth grade geometry. I was just floating through space. I was just, you know, doing enough to get by. But it wasn't a part of my memory. So, you know, this whole topic, 
of the Gnostic memory. It's really not academic or knowledge that you gain through study. And some people are very good at that. And there are things that I do remember. Like there are ideas, there are things that I have studied that I vividly remember, that I can recall. There's information, data. But it's not what I'm talking about here because I think it comes to you differently. And there are people who can remember what their eighth grade math teacher said or, or taught them, you know, or, you know, so there's people who can remember that. And that's impressive in its own right. But I don't typically relate to those people. The people who are kind of almost there, there are people who are kind of scientific in their memory, where they almost they remember things that were crucial to survival or something like getting through math class, because they had to memorize the periodic table, they're going to remember that forever because their grade depended on it. But they wouldn't be able to understand why the guy in the Chucky, the guy describing his Chucky e. Cheese outfit was important. <laughs> they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't necessarily relate over that. They'd be like, oh yeah, that was weird. If they do remember it, it's just like, oh, that was weird. And it's like, no, no, but remember when he said, remember how he gestured? You know, it's it, It's just one of those things where I think my friends, you know, they're observers. And so that observational memory is not just what brings us together in the moment. It's also, you know, what gives us that view into stuff that that's happened in the past it's what it's the source of that nostalgia and it's not just hey remember when we were drinking iced teas on vacation and how good it felt no it's something weird it's something specific that you are recalling in detail and you're comparing details and there's something you know there's something very crazy about that like nick said it's weird to remember the things that i personally remember even getting away from this shared experience, it's weird to, you know, to personally remember things that only you recall. I mean, and it's funny to think, I think about a random thing an adult said at a party. Like, let's say my family went to a Christmas party when I was six years old, and one of the dads made a stupid joke, and the fact that I can still remember that, and he probably doesn't remember it. You know, and uh, it's just funny to me, though. It's like, and, and the things that end up being stored, and it seems limitless. I don't feel like there's a limited amount of computer memory inside of me. Maybe there is, but we can't measure that. We can't study that. We don't know. I mean, we know that we lose our memory as we get older, that our brain decays and that's just a fact. But that's not necessarily the result of limited capacity. That's just dying. That's the process of dying. You start to let go of, of everything, whether you want to or not. But one last thought, I was just thinking about that experience of taking the city bus to the baseball game. And that was a real like city kid experience. I think that's, that experience stands out to me because I felt like I was on Sesame Street or something. You know, so many of these kids shows were very urban. I never watched Sesame Street, and, and I'm, not saying that, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to dismiss it. Sometimes when you say you didn't do something, people hear that and they think, oh, so you don't like it, huh? It's like, no, I just simply never watched it. It never appealed to me. I, just, I don't even know when it was on. 
I wouldn't even have been able to tell you how you could watch it, what channel it was on. You know, I didn't like like learning shows. I guess I didn't like it. I guess I didn't like Sesame Street. I guess I guess that made up person that I just came up with who hears me say I never watched it and interprets that as me not liking Sesame Street. I guess they're right. I don't think I liked it. I don't I didn't really like any of those urban shows where you it was like city kids sitting on stoops. It wasn't relatable to me, but I mean I liked a lot of things I didn't relate to. But there was this sort of like a lot of children's shows at least in my in my memory, they were kind of like kids sitting on stoops taking the city bus. And I guess that makes sense given how many kids grew up in cities. And so I'm glad that those shows existed for those kids. But for me, it was just, this isn't a part of things for me. And it's not like those shows were necessarily geared toward like living in the ghetto or something. It was just, sometimes they even showed like you could, like, like wealthy kids like these New York, uh, you know, East Side, whatever they are. I've never even been to New York, and I shouldn't pretend to know what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, there was this sort of, it wasn't just like, oh, kids in the ghetto hanging out on stoops, like having to take the bus because their parents don't own a car. There was also this sort of like wealthy, you know, kids who go to like high schools that are geared toward the arts, you know, in, in New York, you know, it, there's just that whole vibe and it was never relatable to me. So this experience I had where for a, a kid's birthday party, we took the bus to the city, you know, that stands out to me too, because it, I felt like I was on one of these children's puppet urban whatever shows. Like, I was just like, I, I don't know anything about this. Um, just had to say that for some reason. I just had to point out that I don't relate to these stoop shows. They're stupid. They're, they're stoop shows. These bus riding stoop sitting shows. Um, yet I did like Ninja Turtles, which, you know, was urban too. You know, it was su- the urban New York sewer. I loved that. So it's not just an anti-city mentality here. It's not anti-metropolitanism. Oh, as a child, I was very anti, anti-metropolitan. No, but it's not just that, because, I mean, like, in the, the first Ninja Turtles movie, like, I found their depiction of New York scary. Because New York apparently was scary at the time, and I think it's going to be scary again. It's going to be a haunted city, a haunted house, haunted buildings. But uh, the way they was the way that New York was depicted in... In movies like that, like the first Ninja Turtles live action movie, some other things, that was attractive to me. And the way the sewer was depicted, I mean, of course the sewer was attractive because it wasn't a filthy, you know, it, it wasn't shit floating down there. It was like this perfect hideout, this pristine hideout. It wasn't nasty at all. Excuse my language. Excuse me. I'm sorry to put that in your head, the idea of what a real sewer actually is. So, I mean, of course I was drawn to the Ninja Turtles. I guess it was a good guy hideout, but I mean, their their good guy hideout would have made a great bad guy hideout. A, a perfectly clean, no longer in use sewer. Would have made a great bad guy hideout. But uh, anyway, so it, it's not even this anti-metropolitan attitude that made me 
absolutely hate Sesame Street. No, I didn't hate it. It just made me just not want nothing to do with it. But it was just something about the way it's depicted, like, oh, we're just, this is how a kid rides the bus. Oh, this is how you pay the bus fare. This is how we watch the garbage man from our stoop. You know, it was just that over and over again. And there's a, you know, I wanted, I wanted nothing to do with shows like that. Yet I wanted something to do with a show where non-humans live in a sewer. <laughs> you know, so go figure. But anyway, back to memory. You know, it is, I, I do value memory a great deal. And it's weird, you know, having had my mom die recently. And my mom and I enjoyed finding new details in the past. Like, like something, like if my mom and I decided to go out to lunch or, you know, take a drive together, a lot of it was kind of just, not just rehashing the past, but kind of analyzing the past. And, you know, because she was the same way where it, it was funny the things that she wouldn't remember, but when it came to experiences and stuff, that was she was similar to me in that way where she was into the Gnostic memory. You got to love how pretentious this is. Anti-metropolitan Gnostic memory. But, you know, that was something that my mom and I connected over. We enjoyed kind of going over it. And it's no coincidence that my friend Nick, who called me last night, was very close to my mom as well. But when, you know, having had my mom pass away, I you know, I think one of the most difficult things beyond the loss of her company is, oh, I, I realized, oh, there are certain memories that I will never be able to talk about with her again. Sure, I can talk about them, but they're not with people who were there, not with people who rem- who mutually remember them. And I'm, I'm totally okay with that, too. You know, I don't bring this up as some kind of sob story, like, oh, there's certain things. Like, obviously, when someone dies, you will never be able to talk about certain shared experiences with another human being again, and specifically a human being who was incredibly important to you. So that was something I realized early on. And it's not just remembering things, but it's also telling people things. There are are things that you experience now, new things you experience, and you think, I really want to tell that person about it. And loss in general you know, really brings that out where, you know, there are certain girlfriends I've had where I think, oh, I saw something funny that only she would have appreciated or something like that. And you want to tell them. And sometimes it's okay to, like, sometimes you have a good enough rapport where you can, but sometimes they're not in your life. And sometimes even if you could reach out to them, even if things are okay, it's just not really worth the you don't really want to dig into that hole and be like, hey, I saw something that reminded me of you. You know, it's it's pleasant, but it's also sometimes you don't want to go there. And breakups are a death because, you know, two people together form a third entity that is that requires those two people. And I haven't experienced that quite as much as a group of friends. Like I've had groups of friends and I haven't really experienced that third entity in the same way as I have with one other person. Whereas, you know, a, a one-on-one friendship and, you know, 
you know, or a girlfriend or anything like that, or a mom or whatever it is, you know, I, I haven't experienced that with a group of people so much. I feel like when the, I feel like the third entity that is formed by a group of people, while it can have some kind of purpose to it, like maybe a band or you're working on it on something together, you're building something. I don't feel that it really feels I don't feel that it really feels like a a totally independent third party that is formed, you know, it doesn't feel like another person. Whereas for me, one-on-one relationships end up feeling like you together create another person that is made up of the both of you. It's almost like when a when two it's like when twins in a video, it's like Last night I was playing Final Fantasy IX and you fight these jester twins and you kill them and then like they they form a larger single entity with two heads but it's one it's one big like nasty mutant jester which is a phrase I never imagined I would say it's one big nasty mutant jester <laughs> but uh it's, it's it was funny to me though how it's funny to me how that happens with, you know, your friends or people you're close to, how you basically form a big, nasty mutant jester. You know, it takes two of you, but you form one whole. And, uh, but yeah, with death, with a breakup, I mean, even just talking about my, you know, a friend of mine who I didn't talk to for a couple of years. I, there was no real reason for it. We just kind of had, you know, some sort of uh, quiet falling out. And that sucked because this is a good friend of mine and it sucked to not be able to say, it sucked to not be able to say, hey, you know, you wouldn't believe what I saw today. You wouldn't believe this truck had a bumper sticker, you know, you know what I mean? It's that kind of stuff. And uh, it's, it's death. I mean, that is death. And when someone that you have unique memories with, someone that you have that not when you share that gnostic memory with somebody when you share that knowledge it's a strange experience when one person dies and you know that's that's honestly the thing that sucks the most about my mom being gone beyond the fact that she's this person i love is no longer in my company in the same way but like the in terms of just like practical things that suck about it it's it's just not being able to be like oh hey remember this thing but then there's a beauty to it cuz you realize that you you realize that remembering that yourself is it's it's not entirely one sided you it, it, i mean it sounds cheesy but it's like you remembering it is almost a communicate. It's not almost. I mean, it really feels like that itself is a communication with that person who is no longer here. And they don't feel like they're no longer here. And it doesn't feel like a coping mechanism. It doesn't feel like, I'm just going to tell myself that this memory is that person being alive in some way because it makes me feel better. I don't really want to make myself feel better. <laughs> you know, it, it's like when I talk about Zen you know, what I like about Zen practice and Zen philosophy is that it really isn't what we think of when we hear, oh, I was having a Zen moment, follow your bliss, oh, I was just in this state of bliss, this is Zen bliss, you know, 
maybe not as many people think that as I as I joke about, but there does seem to be, the, to be this idea that Zen is is like this sort of pleasurable state of nothingness when it's like no it's not not even the pleasure for me and i mean i wouldn't call myself you know a, a, a true practitioner of zen nor would i consider myself an expert but it, it is a part of my thinking it is part of my own practice and i think the reason why zen is so attractive to me is because it isn't necessarily attractive it's actually quite brutal at times and it forces you to reject coping mechanisms and maybe not even reject them but just not hold on to them and so when i say that somebody dying or breaking up with somebody or you know or simply just not being in touch with somebody from your past you know in a way that it's almost like a form of zen practice where you're you're not you you let go of the fact that i don't know i mean you almost become the whole like i mean i think that's part of it. it's to use the the obvious zen word like dualism where it's like that memory is no longer a dualistic memory where you and that person both volley back and forth but you almost absorb the whole of it and in doing that, you absorb that person, and that person kind of becomes a part of you. And yeah, you could start talking to yourself. You start if you start having conversations out loud with that person, which I think might have its time and place. I haven't. I don't do that, but uh, I might remember everything. But uh, I don't. I don't do that. I don't have full on conversations out loud with other people who aren't with me anymore. But you do have this internal sort of communication. And you, in, in many ways, it's like that memory is wholly yours now, but the memory contains that other person who's no longer in your life. And so there's this sort of merging. Um, and uh, it's just, it's an interesting thing. But when you do reconnect with somebody, I mean, like that friend in particular, reconnecting with him has been great because now we can just launch back into it. We can just launch back into that stuff. Uh, we can launch back into memory as well as sharing new things and experiencing new things. And the, anytime you talk about this stuff, it's going to sound kind of... Uh, I don't entirely like the language you have to use, like, oh, reconnecting, shared experience. Reconnecting, shared experience. You know, it's like, it's just, it's it's not the kind of language I really like, but it's it's hard to to find more suitable language without spending all your time. It's it's so easy. I mean, it's like I always say with selfie and these other words that my intuition wanted to reject or maybe, maybe my ego wanted to reject them, not my intuition. It's like, I don't want to hear the word selfie come out of my mouth. And you just realize I'm going to have to put so much more work into coming up with a substitute for the word selfie that I'm just going to end up wasting my time because I don't like the way a certain word sounds coming out of my mouth. And then I have to do explanations like this every time I want to talk about that thing. So it's the same thing with, you know, your relationships. I don't even like the word relationships. Whenever I say, oh, your relationships with people, you know, it's like, because first of all, it has a romantic connotation. 
I'm, you know, when I talk about relationships, I mean, I'm talking about your relationships with strangers because that's a relationship too. You know, you have a relationship with everybody who's alive right now. You have a relationship with everybody who's dead right now. And, you know, yeah, maybe I sound like a 15-year-old on mushrooms being like, oh, man, I have a relationship to everybody living or dead. Uh, I'd love to meet that 15-year-old. <laughs> but, uh, but you do have a relationship to everybody in your own way. You have a relationship to people in line at the grocery store. You're, you're sharing this little bit of time, and in the grand history of all people, you are in the same place at the same time. And you may very well live in the same neighborhood, and this might happen more than once. It's like I was talking about the girl. I'm just bragging about it, but I, I keep bringing up this girl who hit on me when I was walking Batty, and how then she a week later she was in front of me in line at the grocery store, and uh, she doesn't know it, but we have a relationship. You know, even though I never even got her name. We have a relationship because, oh, we, we were in the same place at two different times. And actually, if I met that girl, we could talk about our memory together. We could be like, hey, you know, remember that day that we were both walking at the school? I don't know what else we would say. <laughs> uh, remember that day that we were both at the grocery store together? Do you remember, uh, do you remember like what that cashier what kind of glasses that cashier was wearing. No, but, you know, that is a relationship. And uh, it's interesting to think about that, how, like, just being in the same place at the same time as somebody gives you the opportunity opportunity to observe the same things. And for me, that's the basis for friendship. Most of my friendships have been formed because of, oh, that person noticed the same thing I noticed. And I wouldn't even be able to tell you what that is. Most of my friendships, I don't even know where they came from. There are some people that were like, you know, they might have been friends for a while. I'd always consider them friends. You know, I don't disown friendships, but, you know, sometimes you just, you leave an open channel, but you don't really have reason to talk or hang out anymore. Uh, and it's funny with though, it's, it's funny because I can often remember the circumstances of how I became friends with people who aren't my closest friends. Like, I think about it, and I'm like, hmm. Oh, yeah, I met them through this person. They, I worked with them. There are those sorts of situations. But the people who are actually closest to me, while I could map it out, I could kind of do some a deep dive and really trace it, I don't really remember what it was, especially if they're from my childhood. I don't remember what it was. And I was talking to my friend last night about that, where I was like, you think about all the kids that you may have like had a quote-unquote play date with. And there's another word I don't like. You think about all the other kids growing up who you had a relationship with. <laughs> a play date is a relationship. Hey, did you know that a play date is a relationship? Uh, but that's another word I don't like, play date. Oh, it's a play date. Let's, let's get the kids together for a play date. I'll grill some dogs. I'll grill some hot dogs. Um, but you think about, like, how many of those didn't stick? You know, and I'm, you know, this episode's starting to sound like I have a million friends, and I don't. Uh, just 100,000. I only have 100,000 friends. 
all the strangers that I've ever known who don't know me. The guy who, who described his Chuck E. Cheese outfit to us at the bus stop when I was 10, he's my friend. I, I feel that way, but but you think about you know all the kids that you know your your parents might have arranged for them to come over and or you went to their house once and now it just doesn't stick even though as a kid you have every reason in the world to become friends with another kid another boy who plays with ninja turtles who plays video games and speaking of you know no memory is too big or too small when you're crazy <laughs> too small or too big or too small to remember i i remember this kid who came over to my house once he was a year older than me, and I was in a split class. And I don't mean to turn this into just every memory I have in life, but uh, he came over, and we played video games. And his mom had him when she was, like, 16, and we were, like, 7. So his mom was, like, 21 years old or something, or she might have been a little bit older. But she had him, Let's. I think, when she was quite young. And my mom had me when she was 38. And that's a weird thing to think about, the fact that this super young mom, because I remember the mom coming over to pick up her son and heard my mom talking. And in retrospect, my mom was like easily like like almost 20 years older than this woman, maybe 20 years older. I don't even know about it was something like that. Where And it was just like, wow, they both have kids. This This woman's son was even a year older than me. But yet she's 20 years younger than my mom. It was just It's just weird to think about the situations that children force adults into. And in that way, adults, parents end up on play dates too. When you, when you arrange a play date for your kid, it's a play date for the moms, for the adults. Because uh, that's a chemistry thing too. That's a thing where you can't necessarily, like adults aren't necessarily going to become friends. But some do. Some some adult some kids might not like each other, but the parents do become friends. You know, there's that kind of thing, or not even not like each other. It's not even a dislike thing because I think about when certain kids say I went over to their house as a kid, or I went to their birthday party, and there was no active dislike, but it was just this sort of like, oh yeah, there's nothing really to do. There's nothing more to this. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we played with toys. They had like a cool thing in their backyard. Their their house was cool. We played video games. We had fun, I guess. But you feel kind of uncomfortable, and you you don't want to hang out with them again. Whereas another friend, you know, it's for me, it's a mystery, like, how I made certain friends. Like, I don't remember that initial, like, how did I meet this kid? How did I meet this kid? Whereas with more casual friends, with people who aren't your closest friends... I could tell you exactly right off the bat. Oh, yeah, we met through this person in this situation. I said this. This person said that. Break it down. But, yeah, with the closer friendships, it's a little more, uh, you know, it, it does get into souls. It does get into spirit. It does, I mean, get into all sorts of other territory that I won't go into, you know, as far as uh, past lives. Who knows how it works? Having work to do. Having some sort of oh oh I can work with this person oh, we we can do something with this but a lot a lot of times I know that it does come from shared observation noticing the same things and for me it used to be like when I would make friends at jobs and school and things like that college which you know a lot of people make close friends in college and I really didn't I made good friends 
in other areas of my life at the time that I was in college, but I, I can't think of any friends that I have right now who I met in college, like a girlfriend or two, but actual buddies? No, I'm not somebody who really... I don't know, just the situation didn't lend itself. But at the time, it was like, you know, the people that I made friends with in college or at work, It's off. it was often something negative, like a negative observation, like, oh, that somebody turns to you and they're like, fuck this. And you go, yeah, that's what I was thinking, fuck this. So it used to be like where it was very easy to form friendships because you both are repelled by something you're seeing. Uh, so that's interesting, the idea of like, oh, this is another person who I can talk shit with. This is another person I can talk shit with. You know, that was always appealing. Um, and, uh, you know, in my life, I've just naturally, I think, hopefully moved past that of just like forming friendships based on like what sucks. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is a thing where it's, you know, shared observation is important and shared observation is what's going to establish that memory and that memory of all things big and small or also what make you say to yourself i'm crazy it's why nick called me last night and said when you're crazy nobody no one or no thing is too big or too small to remember because that is crazy. Even if you're totally clear-headed and totally sane, sometimes when I think about some of the things that I remember, it is crazy to me. It is crazy that that stuck in my mind. Of all minor things, out of all the trivial things that I could remember forever, and sometimes I want to go back in time and say somebody said something that I still remember. I want to go back to them and say, hey, guess what? I'm still going to remember this 30 years from now. Oh, hey, that thing that you, you said, that joke you made, I'm going to remember that 30 years from now. And that's scary. That In the same way that it's scary that my friends remember as much as I do, including the good, the bad, the ugly, and especially the embarrassing you know, if you told total strangers that, hey, hey, I met you once when I was six years old and you made a little comment that seemed totally minor. You were probably just trying to fill the air. You were at a Christmas party. You were a dad. You weren't really close to the, to the other parents at the Christmas party. And you made a little joke to kind of break the ice. Well, guess what? I'm still going to remember it 30 years later. <laughs> and when you put it that way, it does sound crazy. When you put it that way, it does sound pretty crazy. But I don't think it is. I think it's actually what keeps me sane, really. It's what keeps me sane. And I think right now, memory is important. And not being attached to memories. Not being attached. Because I think the difference between what I think of as healthy nostalgia, nostalgia, I think it's nostalgia. It's like fibromyalgia. Um, but I think what makes nostalgia healthy is not being attached to it, not being wistful, not wishing for the past to be here again. It's simply being able to look back on it and laugh and enjoy that memory. And um, it doesn't have to be a laugh. It could be horror, too. It could be a part of the haunted house. 
could be another room in the haunted house. But being able just to look back on it and, you know, find some value in it one way or another, you know, I think that's the approach to nostalgia that I try to take. You know, it's very easy to get sucked into the nostalgia mill. And now that we live in a world where there's a nostalgia industry that didn't exist before. People have always had nostalgia, but, you know, with the creation of the internet, there was the nostalgia industry. Hey, you want to wear a Super Mario Brothers pixel shirt your whole life? Oh, hey, you're 50 years old. You want to wear a Legend of Zelda shirt? You want to wear this Legend of Zelda shirt the rest of your life? Because it's nostalgia? You know, that we live in that world where the nostalgia industry is strong and uh, it's kind of overtaken our ability to create new things at the rate that we used to. And uh, we, we kind of gotten immersed in, you know, just remakes, uh, you know, and if not remakes, just re-watching old... Oh, I, I can watch every Saturday morning cartoon from when I was eight years old. That's the perfect thing for me to do at age 40. The perfect thing for me to do at age 40 is uh, watch every cartoon from my past. Well, you know, when I've been smoking weed, which I'm not right now, but when I've been smoking weed every once in a while, I will get on that kick where I'll want to play an old video game or I'll want to watch something from my past. And it ends up being a, that ends up being a haunted house moment. Because I'm just like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is, this is, I don't need to be going back and trying to mine this stuff and act like I'm there again. And there's some stuff that does, you, you can do that with, but there's some things where you just end up having this existential moment related to time and youth and growing older and things that I can't even possibly describe. But you can turn the haunted house into a fun house, and I guess that's what it is. You can, you can turn nostalgia into part of the fun house. You can turn the haunted house of memory into some sort of fun house, including the haunting memories. You know, you can turn the stuff that you might not want to remember into something that makes you laugh. And, and I think nothing makes me laugh more than simply, nothing makes me laugh more than just the idea that something even happened at all. More and more, that's how I feel, is just the phenomenon itself. The phenomenon of life, to me, is the funniest thing I could possibly imagine. And that includes the life that's already come and gone. And the fact that I'm a person who feels connected to that because I experienced it, because I know it. That is funny to me. And uh, so, you know, you really can turn that haunted house of memory into a fun house. You can enjoy it. You can enjoy all that's there, good, bad, ugly, and embarrassing. Um, and uh, no, but no memory too big or too small. And people I know who don't remember things, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I always keep going here. And because uh, I've talked about that on here before, where... Pretending not to know things, I don't know if it's, I don't know if people simply don't know, but it's, it, it, what I always think of is in school, how kids were thought of as uncool if they raised their hand and answered the teacher's question. And even though kids want to answer in some cases, 
they want to look cool in front of their peers. And there's something, it's almost like snitching. If you and if the teacher says, oh, what's three plus seven equals what? Raising your hand and just saying 10, it's almost like snitching on your peers. There's almost this weird survival, you know, I don't even know. It's, it's like social survival. There's something that kids don't like, cool kids don't like about answering questions. It's where it's like, even just answering an academic question in school is somehow almost a form of snitching. And how uh, it was a realization to me that, you know, kids would also pretend not to know who each other is, <laughs> who each other are. Uh, I don't know how to say that. Kids would pretend not to know who each other is. Uh, I feel like that's wrong. But uh, anyway, kids, I, I noticed that, you know, as part of the the whole social survival game in school, you know, someone would say like, oh, you know, uh, Jenny Smith, who's that? Who's Jenny? Even though you have homeroom with, with her, you hear her name read on roll call. Someone will pretend not to know who Jenny Smith is. Because there's some sort of currency, especially when you're growing up, but I don't think it ends then. But there's some sort of currency when you're in that social survival to not knowing. To not knowing what the teacher taught you. Even though secretly you're going to ace the test and you studied because you don't want your parents to be mad at you, you're going to pretend not to know what the answer is in front of your peers. You're going to pretend to not know who Jenny Smith is, even though you've been going to school with her for 10 years and you'd be able to name her siblings who are in other grades, and you probably know what neighborhood she lives in. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing where we pretend not to know who someone is. And part of that, part of the not knowing who someone is thing is that we're terrified that other people don't know who we are. The idea that somebody else in school doesn't know who you are is crushing to the ego. It's almost like a a, a more abstract form of... Wave, you see somebody wave at you, and you wave back, and it turns out they were waving at the person behind you, which has happened to me. It's happened to everybody. Everybody relates to that, and it makes you feel it crushes your ego, even if you're a confident person. You know, I never, you know, I've always feel like I've been pretty okay with who I am. You know, I've never hated myself, but in that moment when when you find out that somebody was waving at somebody behind you. I mean, kick me right in the balls. I'd rather be kicked in the balls than to have someone wave at me and me wave back and it not... The wave wasn't intended for me. I'd rather be kicked right in the... I'd, I'd rather be kicked in the sack. Um, some people would prefer that over, like, the the, e the social ego crush of not being known or acknowledged. And Eric, who's that? But something I realized... Near the end, something I realized at the end of high school, I didn't go to graduation or prom or any of that stuff. But a friend of mine who went, he was telling me how, like, a couple kids got drunk and they were going up to everybody and they were just like, Oh, you know, like, I, I loved you. Not, and I don't mean like in a, in a crush sense, but it was like they were acknowledging all these people that they, because it, it was coming to an end and they were inebriated at prom or something so it was like their their inhibitions were down their their social survival wasn't what it had been you know 6 months earlier so it was like oh i can i can acknowledge that guy in homeroom you know i can acknowledge that i can acknowledge jenny smith now and 
I left my hometown right after high school, like a matter of a couple months after I graduated high school. I moved, you know, an hour over an hour away, and I would only occasionally go up and visit friends. But from what I learned about the townie experience is that all those people who stayed in town, they no longer were social survival became knowing each other. Whereas in school, it was, you you know, in order to like maintain your popularity or something, you thought that you had to not acknowledge people and not know who people were, even though you did, because we all observe, we all notice things. But when you're a townie stuck in your hometown, those people that you went to school with are all your, that that's the, the recruitment pool for your all of your future friendships, so you have to acknowledge them. And especially if you're going out to towny bars, you get a buzz going, and it's like, oh yeah, even though we didn't talk to each other in school, I know we know each other's full names, and we can just talk at this bar and be... And you see where, like, relationships, like, like romantic relationships, marriages are formed that way. Like, sometimes I'll hop on Facebook, and I'm just blown away at who got married. I'm like, you guys, you guys got married, huh? You two, you guys who didn't even acknowledge each other ever in school, but you knew who each other was the whole time, you know, because people aren't stupid. People are much more aware than anyone could ever give them credit for. It's why I refuse to think of most people as stupid, because my basis for what my basis for intelligence, as I've said many times, is awareness and that's what that's the story of Adam and Eve is one of becoming aware. You know, eating from the tree of knowledge makes them aware. It didn't give them, you know, it didn't teach them algebra. It didn't teach them the periodic table. When Adam and Eve bite from the apple, it didn't teach them they didn't suddenly memorize data. They didn't become rain man. They became aware. And so the tree of knowledge, what is that then? It's the tree of awareness. So knowledge is awareness in that context. And that's how I see intelligence. I see it as awareness. And it's why I don't think animals are stupid. Animals are stupid because they they can't... Did you know that that cat doesn't even know the periodic table? It don't even know what the elements stand for? You know, people talk like that. Did you know that that, see all those cows out there? You know, they don't know algebra. You know, it's like, that's the sort of attitude people can take into the world. And it's like, do you know how aware those animals are? That's why I see animals as fundamentally intelligent, because they are so aware, so much more aware than we are in some cases. But I don't, I'm not going to downplay our awareness. I'm always amazed, like, like sometimes you'll know somebody, like, like, every once in a while I remember, like, hanging out with somebody, and, like, someone's, like, white trash friend would be there, and you just immediately judge them, oh, this guy's stupid, and then they would say something, and you'd be like, oh, they notice things, oh, this guy notices things, and that, to me, is always when I go, that person's intelligent. But recognizing that it's awareness isn't limited to certain people. Some people are lacking awareness, and I don't connect with them. I don't know how they connect with anybody. 
maybe other people who lack awareness. But to me, the basis for intelligence is awareness. And I don't think it's any coincidence that whether you believe the story or not doesn't matter. I don't think it's any coincidence that eating from the tree of knowledge makes Adam and Eve aware. It's not intelligence in the academic sense. It's not intelligence in terms of like, oh, uh, I can suddenly read. Oh, I, Adam and Eve ate from the apple, from the tree of knowledge, and now they can read books. No, they're aware of themselves and their surroundings. And it's different than animal awareness, sure. Animals are self-aware in a different way, but they're very aware. Um, so that's my basis for intelligence. And what is awareness? It's observing. It's experiencing. It is forming memories. And, you know, thinking about animals, you know, I'm amazed at what Batty remembers and what he learns without me trying. Yeah, you teach, because I thought you had to teach dogs everything. I knew they were aware of certain things like, you know, animals hear the sound of the can opener or something when they're going to get food. But it's like the little things that Batty has learned since he moved in with me where if I, if I pick my laptop up, he knows I'm going upstairs. He's learned, if he, when he hears the sound of the Velcro on my workout gloves when I'm taking them off, when he just hears that sound of Velcro from the other room, he can be in a deep sleep and he wakes up because he knows, oh, the, Eric's done working out and we're going to go do something else. You know, he's so aware and... It's not that he's just aware in the moment, but he remembers the things that he notices. And when he first started visiting me before he moved in, before he became, you know, a part of my household, anytime I would go up and downstairs, he would follow me. Because he was just like, oh, I'm going where he goes. Because he And he still has that need to be where I'm at. But he's learned, and it kind of... I felt bad because I go up and down stairs like to retrieve things, to do things. There are times where I'm just like doing things around the house and it causes me to repeatedly go up and down the stairs. And I felt bad because I was like, he thinks that I'm going up there to stay. And so he's running up and down and he's, he's doing all this extra movement. But he's learned that I don't always stay. And if I've been upstairs for a while and say I run downstairs, say I'm working out and I, I go downstairs to get something to drink, He'll just hang out at the top of the stairs, or sometimes he stays in his bed. He'll, he'll stay in his bed, or he'll stay at the top of the stairs, or he'll like go down partially down the stairs, because he's like, I know you. I've learned that you don't always stay downstairs, and I don't really want to make the effort of going down and up. So I'm just going to hang out at the top of the stairs and watch for a minute to see if you're really going to stay down there, or if you're coming back up. So it's interesting how he's he's very aware of everything I do, but it's through that awareness and that observation that he learns and he responds accordingly. He knows that when I do certain things, you know, that generally means that I'm going to this place in the house or that I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be changing my activity to this. And uh, that is knowledge. That is a dog learning simply from observation. That isn't me saying, here's how you shake a hand. That isn't me saying, it's not me training him. 
It's simply his own awareness. It's his own knowledge. It's why he's intelligent. I don't know if all creatures do that. I know dogs are particularly sharp. I know dogs are particularly intelligent in the way that we define intelligence, which is awareness. I'm not, I'm not talking shit about trees. You know, trees are so stupid because they, they're not aware, even though they are, <laughs> even though they produce the, the apple. Um, even though the tree of knowledge is a, it transcends culture. That idea of the world tree, that idea of, of the tree being a source is, uh, in, in a lot of different cultures, a lot of different belief systems, the tree, um, but I'm not, I'm not saying because trees aren't like dogs, they're stupid, <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that sea creatures, sea anemones are stupid because they don't know that when I pick my laptop up, it means I'm going into another room. Um, they have their own awareness, I'm sure, that we can't quite comprehend because they're very different from us. But yeah, I do, and, and just to go back to the point of this whole thing, though, it's it's amazing the things that I remember, and I remember them because I was aware when they happened. And friendship to me is often based not around what you like or dislike, but it's often based around what you notice. Because there are so many different things to notice that when you notice the same things as another person, the two of you almost become that third party. You almost become that nasty, mutant, two-headed jester from Final Fantasy IX. It's formed by the corpses of two separate twin jesters who you already killed. (laughs) But uh, you almost become that when you share your observations with a person. But as I was saying earlier, even when that person is gone from your life one way or another, be it through a breakup, be it just time and distance or or death, the ultimate time and distance is death, uh, even when it's that, it doesn't take it away. It, the whole experience merges with you. Something that you shared with another person merges with you. You become, you know, it's not that the, the third entity doesn't go away entirely. It just merges with you, and, and you know, you as an individual become that thing in some way. Oh, yeah, well, uh, I, I know the, the entire periodic table. No, I don't, I don't want to end on that note. It's important to memorize things. It's important to, you know, I, there's, there's value to memorizing things. There's value to studying. There's value to data in our human world. And I enjoy reading things, too, and I enjoy learning things, and who would I be without those things? But I do think it's important to remember what's at the core of who you are as a person, and that's your awareness. It's your Gnostic memory. It's the things that you know through experience. And nostalgia is a great tool because it it allows you to continually access those things, even just for entertainment, but often even in the entertainment, there's something of value still there. And uh, it's sort of a combination of all of it. 
you know it's it's that experiential awareness it's that gnostic memory that you are forming through your active experience in the now but it's also learning things and studying it's you know there's a balance to these things but in terms of what i value in the people i know the people i love it's their awareness it's what they notice it's what they observe because that's to me what i relate to that is relatable to me and you think about that term relatable relating to somebody is exactly what forms that third entity that mutant jester with two heads formed by the corpses of two je- two dead jesters <laughs> you really have to look this up look up the jesters from final fantasy 9 um uh, but you know that third entity it's formed through relating to somebody because you think about relating, you think about what relation means, to be genetically related to somebody. You end up relating to somebody in a spiritual sense, which means part of you becomes the same. And sharing memory with somebody, sharing Gnostic memory with somebody, that communicates that you too are the same in some way. If your past is the same, you, you, if, you, if you share your past, if you share these memories, there's really no greater evidence that you are the same in some way, that you are related. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 